Hello, everyone. Thank you uh, to all our panelists and to all of you joining us at home. And welcome to our event today entitled, Is it Time to Cancel Household Debt? I'm Joe Spooner. I work in the law department here at LSE. And um, you're very welcome and thank you for joining. So the topic of our event today and our title might seem radical, but we seem to be living in an unprecedented era in which the only pragmatic thing to do is to think radically. Uh, the IMF this week repeated its diagnosis that we're facing the worst global economic conditions since the Great Depression. And this seems to mean that now is not the time to be content with incremental change or reform. And uh, now is not the time to sit on our big ideas and to wait another 100 years for the next big crisis of this magnitude to come along. So now is the time for thinking big. Uh, and indeed, this need to think big is one of the key lessons we take from the last great global crisis we faced 12 years ago with the onset of the global financial crisis. Uh, responses to that crisis fell far short of remaking our economy and instead, in fact, perpetuated models of financialization and debt dependency, which arguably have left our economy and society uniquely ill-equipped to deal with a crisis of the type which we're now facing due to COVID-19. Following the peak of the global financial crisis, Household debt levels over the subsequent decade decreased only marginally. For example, debt to income ratios in the UK decreased from 160% to 140%. And this is in a context of continued reliance on what has been called a privatized Keynesianism model of debt led economic growth, under which global debt, um, sorry, under which public debt is rationed while private debt soars. We've seen real wages stagnate over the past decade. And the loans for wages trend continuing with households relying on debt to help make ends meet and pay for essential services, while also keeping the economy ticking over by so doing. This is also in a context of austerity and intense welfare state retrenchment and in where we see debt filling the gaps arising in the shrinking social safety net. So we can look at this from many dif different perspectives. In the UK at the start of this year, we saw the highest in-work poverty rates in 20 years. There were uh, striking rises in households being categorized as having negative budgets where their essential outgoings exceeded their incomes. The Money Advice Service calculates that there are 8 million people in the UK at the, even before the COVID-19 crisis who are over-indebted, meaning that their um, debts were effectively unrepayable. Um, so when we see these kind of conditions, they obviously have negative effects for impacted households, but also uh, there's now clear consensus emerging, even amongst mainstream bodies like the IMF and the Bank for International Settlements, that this uh, situation of excessive household debt is having um, an effect on economic stagnation and on the overall wider economy. So we were facing these conditions early in 2020 and then COVID-19 arrived. Um, this has brought devastation for many, as we know, it has exacerbated a lot of these trends, and it has also brought striking inequality. Um, for example, while many households have turned to increased borrowing and more debt in order to deal with the crisis that we've seen, uh, the Bank of England found this summer that many of the better off households actually reduced their debt levels because they were not incurring social spending or other outgoings, which previously would have been the case. So we will see these trends of inequality also deteriorating. So uh, after that somber note, to bring some sorely needed optimism, surely this is a time for reshaping our economy. If not now, then when? 
And this is what we're here to discuss. We're lucky today. We have a wonderful panel of speakers who are brimming with experience and ideas. And I, I think arrived today with visions for how we might move past the current crisis. So I'm very excited to hand you over to them today. Uh, before I do, I must add that um, this is an LSE event and we can never talk about debt at LSE without mentioning and thinking of David Graeber. Uh, David's magisterial book on debt has been a, a true inspiration to all of us. It's never far from our thoughts. And um, we really lost a wonderful friend, colleague and uh, a mentor when he tragically passed from us this summer. So today I wanted us all to think of David and to everyone who was close to him. Um, so I'll now start to hand you over to our speakers. We'll begin with Dr. Jonna Montgomery. Um, Jonna, Jonna is um, head of the Department of European and International Studies, um, next door as it were at King's College, um, when we were all next door to one another. And um, she is most notably, I guess, among her many achievements, uh, she's the author of the wonderful book, Should We Abolish Household Debts? So I'm going to hand you over to Jonna now. Thank you. Hello, thank you so much, Joe. That was a, a great intro. Um, so yes, I'm very, uh, very excited to be here. Uh, I think because, you know, with with all the announcements today um, about you know tightening restrictions and the you know the ever present um, pandemic and, and and the need to have some sort of economic package to to help um, people through this moment of great hardship, um, you know, for uh, the purpose of reducing the spread of a, of a very deadly, potentially deadly virus. So I think that it, it's at these moments where, you know, when we come together in these conversations that we have been having for many years, for, you know, for at least 12 years, um, you know, when we had our first big bailout and, 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 and the, uh, it, until now, you know, this conversation has been going on and on about uh, the importance of dealing with uh, the debt overhang, you know, the persistent problems of kind of bailing out, uh, the banks, but imposing austerity um, on everyone else. You know, these conversations about the role of, of, of debt cancellation within it kind of grew up. But now at this moment, you know, the kind of heresy becomes necessity because we were always considered these sort of, you know, uh, considered quite a radical idea, uh, debt cancellation, you know, in the era of financialization and, and privatized Keynesianism, debt was the engine of growth. It, you know, it, it, it became part of everyday life. It became part of um, really all aspects of, of kind of participation in the economy. So when I, when, when I wrote the book, I really tried to apply kind of David Graeber's very playful and um, inquisitive way of looking at debt, as well as uh, Brett Scott's ideas around heresy and how it relates to finance and debt to really think about you know, what makes this idea um, uh, of debt cancellation, you know, not, uh, you know, that the true heresy is that it is, is a powerful idea to, to really reverse the trends of hardship. It would actually create material relief for many, uh, despite those that oppose it, always um, kind of positioning debt abolition or, or debt cancellation as, you know, the ultimate act of um, financial anarchy. Because if people aren't paying their debts, uh, the sky will fall, you know, the, all markets will collapse, no one will ever get a loan ever again, you know, the, these kind of uh, apocalyptic visions of what would ever happen if, if we just um, cancelled people's debts in the same way we restructure a bank's balance sheet or a corporate entity's balance sheet, um, you know, was really ever present in these moments. But now we see, and, and what the pandemic brings in kind of sharp relief, 
is that, you know, this common theme that ran through the idea around debt cancellation is that admitting when debts are unpayable and must be written off is, you know, the ultimate fault line of power. Um, for some, uh, it's routine and necessary. Uh, well, for other, well, for most, it's actually an act of desperation that comes with a great penalty. So this kind of common theme of the power relations of debt becomes uh, obvious in this moment of the pandemic because, you know, we when we know there's mass unemployment, when we know people are confined to their houses, how can we legitimately say that it's not just that debt should be deferred, they should probably be cancelled because having to come out of a lockdown uh, only to kind of work in order to pay the debts that have been accruing uh, is, you know, we see that there is already economic hardship and it's, it would only add more to, to maintain the status quo on all of this. You know, normalizing uh, debt repayment is almost like a tax that you must pay Every month out of your your income, you must repay, um, you know, meet your, your your debt obligations. So in these moments when we know that people don't have income, that we know there's unemployment and, 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 and business failure, we begin then to ask, uh, again, are these debts unpayable and should they be written off? So I've tried to connect, you know, over the, the past uh, 12 years since the 2008, the way in which debt, private debt, uh, household debt, especially in Anglo-America, its role within this kind of Keynesian macroeconomic uh, debt-led growth model has really created this kind of modern-day debtor's prison uh, in the sense that, you know, people aren't, um, you know, necessarily locked away uh, uh, and, and, you know, it with other debtors, they're, they're sort of imagining, you know, the mortgage market as, you know, people locked in their houses in the way we see, you know, that they, these debt repayments for, you know, mortgage is the ways on the middle classes, right? They, they, the need to, to maintain uh, your mortgage debt is about your, your savings, your safety net, your, your security in old age. There's all, everything's kind of wrapped up in making this kind of modern day debtors prison so that the mortgage debt becomes priority payment. Or for those who are not in, you know, in the privileged middle class in which, again, housing is their only asset, right? So there's no savings accounts. There's no, it's just housing, uh, which again is, is itself not a, a, a guaranteed um, asset for, for those that are highly leveraged. There's also the kind of debtors prison who those who aren't even on the housing ladder, that those that have student debts, uh, consumer debts, uh, you know, fringe finance, predatory lending debts, uh, payday loans, uh, but also priority debts, debts to the state uh, or, or quasi-state institutions. And, and those payments weigh on them uh, in a kind of contemporary way. This is the new marshalcy. You know, they, they can go about and walk around every day, but they must come back, you know, every night to this debtor's prison of how are you going to pay for your debts? So when we think about the demands of repayment, you know, in the economy, at this moment, we can see how the everyday life of people connects to big macroeconomic flows, right? The, the, this demand for repayment before acted like a tax guaranteed form of, uh, you know, converting present day income into revenue for the financial sector. Uh, at this moment, you know, we can see that, that this is an... Uh, as my colleague Brian Davy talks about, debt is now the agent of misfortune. It is not the, the kind of 
passive result of, of, of misinformation or miscalculation of the bad financial citizen. Actually, indebtedness and the un- inability to pay debt is, is because of misfortune and the debt itself then becomes an agent and amplifier of, of misfortune in every in everyday life you know with one mispayment can kind of set off a chain of events that will lead us all the way to the global financial markets uh, when sort of aggregated together uh, that debt itself is uh, the agent of misfortune here uh, in, in exacerbating what is already uh, a really you know situation of economic hardship as as uh, the pandemic sort of limits all of our interactions. So if this is the kind of reality that we face today, it's more and more people are beginning to realize that, you know, debt is something, a real imposition in their everyday life and, and, and is an ongoing problem that they'll have to deal with as restrictions are tightened, as um, people are, are, are increasingly coming up against this very long and hard winter. So what does that mean? Well, it means that Debt cancellation is no longer about who's morally worthy of it, right? It's seen as a necessity, something that, that can be rolled into a kind of package of measures. And, and now we get some momentum and to normalizing uh, debt cancellation is something that can be used quite effectively to reduce hardship, uh, you know, in, in a time of kind of, uh, you know, wider economic collapse. Basically, so when we think about how to, what does that mean, and I'll I'll just wrap up, you know, kind of with reference, you know, to the to the plan that was outlined in my book, which is that, you know, we can quite easily, as these packages are, I'm sure, being drawn up at the at the present uh, uh, in the Bank of England and in, in in central banks around around the advanced world, and and coordinating with with treasuries and and financial regulators, you know, to find ever more ways to bail out uh, the markets. We can begin to demand that, you know, this kind of heresy becomes necessity, that we, we can give a, a long-term refinancing operation. You know, we can give debt relief to households, give them access to these low interest rates through 0% kind of balanced transfer vehicles. You know, that, that would give relief to all kinds of people to just pay less. You know, that's, that's not radical. That's pragmatic, right? But we could also look at debt swaps for mortgage products. Um, you know, again, to, to, to forgive the debts that were deferred, for example, and, and extend, uh, you know, mortgage, mortgage deferral for, um, you know, uh, especially for those in a primary residence, but also, you know, missed rent payments as well. You know, these can be, uh, you know, wrapped together into a, a nice financial vehicle of distressed assets of, of landlords and, 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 and bought out. In the same way the central bank is routinely buying distressed assets off the market, you know, these can be put in. And that was the kind of rolling jubilee, this kind of radical idea of how can we hack and, 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 uh, you know, use the same financial tools that, that, that are used to kind of engineer buyouts elsewhere to actually target that towards people, uh, and, and, and bringing kind of economic, you know, using the tools of the economy to, to actually bring relief. And, also, the state can act to buy distressed debts, right? Whether those are from councils, again, this is the rolling jubilee. Are, are they council debts, council arrears? Are they energy arrears? Are they priority debts? Are they student loans? You know, there's all kinds of way that, ways that the state is already acting to, uh, you know, to buy up these, uh, these distressed assets. It, it just needs to widen its portfolio, I think, would be the, the, the rather technical way of putting it. So... You know, these are possible in this moment because they're, they're necessary and they will actually achieve 
um, some good in a, in a time of, of mass hardship. So, you know, I, I'm happy to, of course, um, talk more about these plans, but, but I think it's really just about, you know, finding the connection across all the speakers and, and all the ways that there are campaigns, there, there are proposals, there, there is momentum behind this idea. And, and how do we kind of seize this moment to, you know, make, to, to gain ground in terms of securing, um, you know, mass uh, debt relief as part of, you know, the response to the pandemic? You know, that I'm quite interested in, in thinking more about that uh, and, you know, with, within this group uh, and in this meeting. Thank you. Thanks so much, Janet. Um, so wonderful ideas and a wonderful sense of urgency as well. I think that's a great way to get us all uh, kicked off and to start the discussion. So next, I'm going to hand us over to Professor Deborah James. Um, Deborah is a professor in our anthropology department at LSE. She's also a fellow of the British Academy. She is the author of Money from Nothing, Indebtedness and Aspiration in South Africa. And Deborah has also just completed, I think, um, an excellent project, ESRC-funded project entitled An Ethnography of Advice Between Market Society and the Declining Welfare State. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. And um, one of the things that I would like to point out is that um, the people that I'm meeting with here, perhaps in the audience and also here on, on the stage, if that's what it is, um, have been meeting together for quite a period of time and often addressing exactly this this issue. Um, I've just done a, a short little list of, of a number of workshops that have gone on. The very first one, I think, was hosted by Jonna ages ago, and several of us have been present at, at some of the others. So this is not a new topic. This is a topic that has been running and, and addressed and hopefully today's sort of workshop can build upon uh, some of these suggestions that were outlined um, in, in these earlier ones. This is definitely a topic of great urgency and one that has been thought about in quite some detail over time. So uh, my own work um, has been very much at the sort of coalface looking at debt advice and so I want to speak in, in praise of debt advice today. I recognize that many people sort of advocate very well what appear used to be appeared to be radical ideas of, of total household debt write-off, and I'm certainly not, not opposed to that. But I'm I'm trying to sort of show the way in which household debt has been experienced, let's say, by people in in, in the everyday world, and and especially the interaction between the the creditors, the sort of private creditor debts that we were, that John was talking about earlier and those debts to the state, which she was also mentioning, which have been experienced with particular kind of vividness by people, especially at the bottom of the pile. So um, the background, just as Joe uh, earlier uh, so, sort of outlined for us, was that of a decade of austerity or, or even more, um, a situation in which poorer people formerly reliant on state welfare have increasingly been having to borrow in order to subvent that welfare by other kinds of means. Um, so sort of transition from welfare to what Soderbergh calls debt fare, the sort of weird combination of, of both creditor um, and state provided. But against that backdrop, a sharp rise in debt to the state, and I'll be going into this in a little bit of detail when I talk about the specific um, example I'm going to, to come up with in a minute, based on the research that I was doing in citizens advice and other debt advice agencies over the last couple of years. 
Now, my research was conducted obviously before COVID, and therefore I'm talking more about the prehistory to the COVID moments. But I will say a couple of things right at the end about the way in which what I'm talking about here, in a sense, really just leads into the, the COVID moments. And perhaps is really, there's quite a lot of continuity between the two. Another word of warning, for those of you who know anything about the details of the United Kingdom's sort of welfare system, um, we now have universal credit. My research was done shortly before that was rolled out. So the, the, the welfare system was far more complicated at the time than it is now. Complexities do remain to quite a large extent. So um, my research has been done in debt advice agencies. And I have found that sitting, listening to debt advisors talk to individuals in detail about their debts has been an extremely interesting process. It has both led one to understand, at least partially, it's taken me a long time, the complex bureaucracies of eligibility and entitlement which apply in, in these, you know, in um, the hugely complicated bureaucracies of state welfare and the various offices which offer it. But in the course of that, I've recognized that it's between these what we might call debt fair recipients uh, and the sort of brokers or mediators or what John Elster calls second order decision makers, that some of the worst effects of financialized capitalism get challenged and countered. And I feel as though even in the future, even if we were to get to a moment where we were finding a way to abolish household debt, it would still be partly to those debt advisors that we'd really rely on and, and that we'd owe a lot um, in order to help to see how people could negotiate their way around this kind of complicated, um, entangled situations that they are in. So I'm going to take you into a specific debt advice encounter, which I was uh, present at in, in a citizen's advice, um, in order to show you a little bit about the complicated interrelationship between private debt and, and, and debt to the state. This was a person called Susan who came in and she was in a great deal of distress. And because of the fact that her, you can see it in green there, her special guardianship allowance that she was being given by the Department of Welfare, Work and Pensions, because she was looking after a grandchild, had been suspended. And as it turned out, it was a, an error which had led to it being suspended. As a result of that, plus the fact that she had certain debts, if you look on the on the other side of the sort of calculus, you'll see that she was in arrears to, to the local authority for council tax. She had been sort of forced into taking out more and more, borrowing more and more money in order to kind of counter all these you know, negative effects of, of the situation. So she was in trouble. And um, the debt advisor's name was, well, it's a pseudonym actually, but it was called Jennifer, said to her, well, I need to sort out your income. And this is why I've, I've entitled this, this talk, Sorting Out Your Income. And the way she did sort out the income was by finding out the ways in which this person, Susan, was entitled to certain benefits, which she may be was not really aware of. So um, as, as she sort of worked through the whole process, telephoned endless people in different branches of the state, whether it be the HMRC, which in fact is rely is responsible for certain welfare payments or the Department of Welfare and Pensions, which is responsible for others, and eventually the local authority itself, in a very subtle and not necessarily huge manner, she managed to sort of counterbalance the, these major problems that, with which her client had been confronted. And that was partly because she had worked out that the client was now actually eligible for housing benefit, which she then applied for on behalf of that client, 
and also for council tax reduction, with, without which the person, Susan, would have been completely unable to, to move forward. She also managed, of course, to reinstate this uh, Department of Welfare and Pensions um, special guardian allowance. So if you, if you think this is confusing, you're absolutely right. This is extremely confusing. And even today, when some of this has been um, replaced by universal credit, I think you'll find that people are in a very kind of confused situation. So what the advisor was, was enabling this person to do was to somehow um, sort of balance her income and find a way around the kind of massive complexity of the situation. And not necessarily, as some very critical authors have, have spoken about, in a, in a way that was sort of all about disciplining them or saying, stop spending money on unnecessary things, don't consume stuff, don't buy fancy goods, but rather just here's a way to balance your situation in, in a much more sort of sober and thrifty manner rather than being all about, oh, these profligate poor people don't know how to spend their money properly type of thing. So in the end of the day, this particular person, this particular client was in fact enabled to you know, sort, sort out her income. And if you just look back again, you, you can see that there's not a vast shift between the two slides, but something about this debt advisor with all of her telephoning to the multiple agencies which are responsible for welfare, but also um, other people as well, including some of the private debtors, was able to sort of help balance the books. Now, what people have often said is that this is far too temporary. You know, in the end, maybe you can put off the private creditors to a certain degree, um, but in the end, it's not going to be very easy to put them off forever. So people have often said, well, debt advisors are really just providing a temporary solution. But I would say that at least, um, in a sense, um, I I'm interested in these sort of nuts and bolts and the coalface uh, activities which, which people like this need to do, and I feel as if they do perform a massive uh, job. Now, uh, what, what then remains interesting to, to, to sort out or to understand is that it's not only at the household level, but also at the local authority level that this sorting out of income has to happen. And this is a quote from a colleague of mine, Claudio Sopransetti, talking about the way in which austerity has actually instantiated this by making certain cuts with, from central government down to the level of the local authority, from make, by making those cuts then sort of devolve right down to the level of the household. What's in fact happened is that this financial burden gets pushed down. Now, in the case of um, the person we were speaking about, Susan, her council tax arrears um, were one of the very substantial parts of the debt that she owed. And it was also called a priority debt. It was going to be the kind of debt that could not be escaped. If, if you are in priority debt, you will be prosecuted. The bailiffs will come and they will recover that debt no matter what. Now, why was the council and why were the local authorities all over the place pursuing this debt with such fierceness and with such zeal? And the reason for that was precisely the fact that the state, the central government had sort of pushed um, austerity upon the local authorities and therefore, in a sense, they, were, they, had no, they had no sort of option but to pursue individual debtors for these amounts of money. So in some sense, uh, the need to sort out income at the household level also has reflections at the level of, of these uh, local authorities. And what the very, very savvy and canny debt advisors were partly actually doing was drawing down as much money as possible from central governments, especially from the Department of Work and Pensions, 
in order to make sure that their clients, who in a sense became like intermediaries, were able to benefit from those central from those central resources and to some degree then lessen the burden on the local authorities. So the client was acting as a kind of intermediary be between um, you know the central government and the local authority and a way in which some of these monies were, were redistributed and redist um, reimbursed throughout the system. So, um, so the solution then, I think, um, is, a, is a highly complex one, but ultimately it does seem to still involve a very important role played by um, people like these, what I call them, second-order um, decision makers. That's what they've been called by, by um, John Elster. And I think the thing to, to note here is that if we were going to try to um, ultimately do some of these radical solutions, including the, the one that, that has been proposed at some of the workshops I've been to, where the government should buy up the debt and, and ultimately you know, lessen the burden upon ordinary people, the, the problem still remains. What about these debt fair cases where people owe more to the state than they do to private creditors? It seems as if if the government's going to buy up debt, the first debt it's going to have to buy up is the debt <laughs> that its own local authorities owe to it. And there's something very weird going on there. Now, even though an, allegedly the austerity regime has been lifted temporarily during the COVID crisis, um, the fact remains that these local authorities are still starved of finance. And, and yet we are asking them to do more and more. And so I feel like part of the solution uh, especially if there is, if there were to be some sort of household um, debt reduction, would involve bringing local authorities more fully into play, but also giving them proper funding, and no more of this devolving of belt tightening down to the lowest level. Now, just to kind of bring the whole story up to speed, and and especially with the, with the COVID situation, as I say, my research was done prior to COVID, but. There are, there are sort of reports on the Citizens Advice website showing that um, the people who are more likely to have been directly affected by coronavirus, who, as we know, tend to be poorer people and people in sort of marginal areas, are also more likely to be behind on their council tax. And there's some figures that they give there. And what they also note is that the, they also note the high add-on costs of council tax debt collections. The fact that you've got to send the bailiffs in to re recoup those taxes is, in fact, has been adding a total, I think, at the last count, of 200 million pounds on top of the monies owed. And once again, it's it's going to be at that bottom level where everyone's scrabbling for those monies that this is is happening. So something needs to be done. Advice agencies have apparently noted a brief lull in requests for debt advice, and that's because so many people have been affected by other things like unemployment, the need for kind of problems with layoffs and so on. Um, so the major economic effects in terms of indebtedness have been said to be somewhat deferred because of the furlough scheme. But advice agencies apparently anticipate being faced with a kind of cliff edge of enforcement when the bans on bailiffs and evictions are finally lifted at the end, well, which more or less now they should have been. So ultimately, um, it's, it is a very dire situation, but I do want to sort of sing the praises of these people who I sat watching for, for so long, and I feel like they still will have a role to play, even if there is a household uh, debt amnesty. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Deborah. And as always, I think your work is so wonderful in 
uh, drawing the link between big picture questions of state debt and public finance austerity and then bringing that down to the level of the individual household balance sheet it's really re revelatory and wonderful to give us that insight um also you raise i think questions that we need to be raising i read recently a document published earlier this year by the government discussing fairness in government debt collection and um, wanting to review and to take in, take on board this issue of you know excessive aggressive debt collection by government agencies but interestingly the terms of reference confined the question to that issue of how these debts are collected and expressly ruled out consideration of the causes of indebtedness in the first place and i think these seem to be the very conversations we need to be having and it's you know really insightful to see you raise them so thanks very much for that um okay um maybe we can discuss that a bit more in the q a later i'm now going to hand us over. sorry I'm, I'm going to hand you over to sarah jane clifton who is director of the jubilee debt campaign a leading organization for research in global debt issues um and carrying out uh, work on e education on the causes and solutions of debt as well and campaigning in solidarity both with indebted countries especially with a focus on the global south at the moment in the context of the COVID crisis but also looking at uh, issues of campaigning regarding indebted households also so thanks very much Sarah. Thanks, Joe. Um, I'm really great to be here um, with this uh, great panelists again. It's interesting seeing that list of the events where we've had these conversations already over the years. Um, I guess exciting that um, that a household debt write-off is something which is becoming um, just more obvious, really, in terms of the the context in COVID. I'm going to start by, um, I guess, answering, giving our answer as Jubilee Debt Campaign to the main question. Um, that this session is focused on, um, which is, is it time for a household debt write-off in the UK? Um, our answer to that is a very strong and resounding yes. Um, we already thought that we needed some form of targeted household debt, debt write-off here in the UK before COVID. Um, uh, going into the pandemic, we already had we already had 14 million British citizens in poverty before. The Sorry, I'm going to take my headphones off. Sorry, um, I'm not quite sure where it cut out. Um, I was, uh, I'll go back to saying that uh, we strongly believe that people. there um, should be um, a household debt write-off here in the UK. Um, we thought that that was the case before the um, pandemic. We had 14 million um, British citizens in poverty before the pandemic. That's 20% of our population in poverty being pushed towards um, high-risk rip-off lenders. Um, and I think, as you mentioned, actually, Joe, in your introduction, our, our allies in debt advice firms were already telling us um, about this stark increase in people reporting negative budgets um, as a, the main issue, the main reason that they were seeking debt advice. So, so essentially, that means people are, um, are in debt because they don't have enough money. Um, that their their um, their income does not cover their absolutely essential basic outgoings, so things like food, electricity, housing costs, um, and so they're having to borrow to cover the shortfall. Um, and so, um, and I think also as 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 John has said, we saw this sort of we saw a decline in household debt levels immediately um, after two thousand and eight, where people were paying down a lot of household debt mostly because of fear about the economic situation. Um, but then we did, we saw it start to rise again and then to rise rapidly across throughout the last uh, decade. 
Um, and household debt was actually the highest level ever uh, just prior to, to COVID-19. Um, so we had the, the average um, family owing about £14,000, not including mortgages, um, around uh, eight, nine million people in problem debt, as has already been said, um, which basically means you're, you are really struggling to repay that debt. Um, and the majority of those households in problem debt being in low income households. Um, so people in like the, the, the sort of very bottom um, income bracket or the bottom two income bracket. So earning under £15,000 a year. Um, and that was before we encountered this profound economic crisis that we're now facing because of COVID-19 um, and which experts are saying is going to be the, the worst and the most protracted recession that we've seen since the 19th century. So um, uh, we thought that a household debt write-off was essential before COVID and we, we, we strongly think it's urgent now. It's, it's important to note, and I think some of the other speakers have indicated this already, um, that the, the impact of COVID on Britain's household debt crisis has not been straightforward. Um, so I think you said, Joe, at the beginning um, about how some people had actually paid off a lot of debt because of lockdown. Um, so we had the, uh, the credit ratings agency Experian reporting, I think even in March, actually, that by March already their average subscriber had paid down £2,000 worth of debt. Um, we had these figures from the Bank of England um, that uh, UK households paid off um, £15.6 billion worth of debt um, uh, in April and May. Um, so, so a lot of paying down of debt by people because of not being able to spend money on, you know, uh, going to the pub, going to the going out for dinner, going to the to the cinema. But then um, we have other research by Step Change, um, uh, uh, advice charity who are um, important allies of ours, that tells a very different story. So they estimate that um, nearly 5 million people have actually faced a drop in income because of COVID and have together accumulated over £6 billion worth of, of arrears and debt, um, averaging roughly about £1,000 worth of arrears and £1,000 worth of debt per adult effect. So the impact of the pandemic on household debt has been very um, unequal, basically. Um, it has essentially exacerbated, in our analysis, the links between inequality and debt here in the UK, making some people much better off and some people plunging them much further um, into debt. Um, and that's, that's with that's what happened, what, what has happened with a lot of government measures in place to protect incomes, which are now either going to be cut or being significantly weakened. Um, so the job retention scheme, um, which had some very big holes in it, is now being replaced by something much weaker. Um, I can talk more a bit more about the, the, um, the social security debt in a minute, but the Department for Work and Pensions, which collects um, a lot of the social security debt, which we consider to be very unjust, which, which is debt um, which has come about because of things like the ridiculous five week wait on universal credit or the miscalculation of tax credits. Um, they've started collecting that debt again. They paused it, but they started collecting it again. Um, the Financial Conduct Authority, which is our bank's regulator, they um, they issued instructions to, to lenders um, at the beginning of, of lockdown to offer payment holidays, um, but those are actually coming to an end in October. They're going to be replaced by something weaker. So all of these measures, which have actually been still really holding off 
the very worst of the impacts on the of the pandemic on household debt are now coming to an end. So the likely consequences of this are obviously um, extremely worrying. Um, so we think, yeah, a household debt is very important um, and it should be targeted, obviously, at the families that need it. We wrote a, a proposal in 2017 with the Centre for Responsible Credit, which was looking at how to implement a, a household debt write-off. Um, we thought uh, then it should be targeted at people with a, um, an, a, a debt-to-income ratio, a ratio of unsecured debt-to-income of around 30%. Um, and we were looking at a definition of unjust debt, which took into account things like, is the debt causing material deprivation? Um, is the debt really rip-off? Like, are people paying ridiculously high interest rates? What is the duration that people are going to be indebted for? And uh, we really think all of those factors need to be taken into account. And we were obviously really, really excited when um, Jonna published her book and really support her proposals um, around household debt write-off. Um, in the context of COVID, we think um, a write-off needs to cover um, debt which is causing people harm during COVID. So what, what we're seeing is, is some interest now from uh, organisations, sectors who previously wouldn't have supported a write-off for a write-off, which is exciting. But a lot of people just want to focus on the debt which has come about because of COVID and are not taking into account the debt which was already there before COVID, which is a lot of debt, which was already causing a lot of harm to people. And it obviously is making people's lives extremely difficult during the pandemic. So we think we need a comprehensive write-off that covers both of those types of debt. And we think it also needs to cover um, uh, social security debt, council tax debt, rent debt, utility bills, and obviously the consumer credit debt like credit cards um, and loans. Um, and we obviously need a really highly tailored approach to these different types of debt because they're very different. They, they have different institutions and processes um, and issues associated with them. Um, we think there definitely needs to be some government funding to pay for it. For example, um, for the reasons that Deborah has gone into, we, we can't and shouldn't expect council tax, uh, so councils to take the, the hit for a council tax write-off. Um, but we do think actually that where the private sector is involved, that there needs to be some burden sharing um, around, around that. Um, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to write-off to lead to the collapse of any important employers or institutions. But we think where, um, for example, high risk lending has taken place or where firms or investors are continuing to make very big profits from these debts in the context of the pandemic, that some burden sharing of that should should happen. Um, they shouldn't expect to be continuing to make high profits um, from these kinds of debts and investments in the context of such a um, profound economic contraction. Um, uh, I, there's been sort of quite a lot of chat already about whether a write-off is radical or not um, as a thing. Um, and um, I guess we, we think it's, it's really just essential in terms of what needs to happen to support low-income families in this context. Um, but it's also, as, as other speakers have already said, there's a very strong case for it from the point of view of the economic recovery, actually, um, that uh, a write-off is a very good way to stimulate demand, to get money into the hands of people who will then go and support their local shop and their local business and will spend money. And we know from the terrible response we had to the last financial crisis, actually stimulating the spending power of people on low incomes is one of the best ways to get us out of a recession quicker. Um, but there's also... Um, uh, I wanted to mention obviously a long global a long global history of using debt write-offs 
to tackle issues of, of problem debt. Um, so my organisation takes its name from the concept of the Jubilee, um, which is in the Old Testament. Um, we're not a religious organisation. We are an organisation for people of all faiths and none. Um, but we work very strong, very um, a, a lot with people in various Christian faith denominations um, um, and people, um, Christians and um, uh, people of Jewish faith. They understand the Jubilee as um, a year of emancipation and restoration every 50 years. Um, and it's basically... Um, uh, uh, a jubilee was a, a periodic celebration um, in ancient times when debts were cancelled, slaves were freed, land was returned to its original owners and fields were left fallow. Um, and there's historical evidence for debt jubilees going back uh, almost 4,000 years. Um, and what's critical, we think, to understand, particularly for our discussion here, is that jubilees weren't voluntarily implemented by benevolent rulers. Um, they were implemented to quell really militant peasant and slave uprisings, which came about when the injustices and inequality in society had just become too much. Um, uh, there were things which were fought for by ordinary people and which were won. Um, and this idea of a, of a jubilee has, has continued to inspire people throughout history. Um, so most recently, in response to um, the big wave of debt crises which spread across uh, countries in Africa, Asia and Latin America in the 1980s and 1990s, um, which came about because of a, a boom in irresponsible lending from US and European banks, but also because of an incredibly unfair economic settlement that countries uh, faced at the end of colonialism, which wasn't really an end of colonialism. Um, and so this, this wave of debt crises um, uh, occurred um, and a very big global campaign sprang up in response, led by campaigners in the global south. Um, and my organisation, we um, we were essentially the, the UK wing of that campaign. Um, uh, and the campaign was successful. It won um, an incredibly big debt write-off of um, the debts of countries in Africa, Asia and Latin America, about $130 uh, billion for 35 countries, um, which made an incredibly significant difference for those countries, obviously, and mapped very quickly to... Um, uh, increased public spending and then to measures like maternal mortality and, chi and uh, child attendance in school. Um, so um, uh, there is, there's lots of precedent for successful write-offs, not, not uh, in recent times here in the UK, but definitely in recent times globally. Um, and what I want to end on saying, I think, is that um, for the important learning for us really is from that is both that it's possible to secure a write-off, um, however may radical it seem, but also that there are actually limits to write-off as a, as a solution to problem debt. Um, so many of those countries which received debt cancellation in response to um, that global campaigning, they are now in debt crisis again, um, just a decade later. And we are actually now rebuilding a really big global campaign to try and get debt cancellation for them again. There was a debt crisis on the horizon before COVID and COVID has made it worse. Um, and the reason why we're having to do that is because the write-off just tackled the debt which had been built up, but it didn't tackle the reasons why countries were being pushed into debt in the first place, the structural reasons which were making them dependent on debt. And we think there's massive parallels between that process and the problems that we see in terms of household debt in the UK. Um, 
And we think it's really important that we learn those lessons from that Jubilee 2000 campaign um, and apply them to our, what we're working on in terms of household debt in the UK at the moment. Um, what it really means for household debt is that it's not just enough to write off the debt. We need to tackle the structural issues which are pushing people into debt in the first place. And obviously, um, the other panellists have done an incredible amount of amazing research and work and analysis showing what those are. Um, for us, this particularly means sorting out our social security system in the UK, building a system which actually provides social security, which basically gives people enough money to live on, which it doesn't at the moment. We've had the extra £20 a week in the context of COVID, but that's just for universal credit. We're not sure it's even going to continue. It still makes the basic universal credit amount £90 a week, which is not enough to live on. Um, but then we have other benefits which that doesn't apply to, which are still around £70 a week. Um, that's simply not enough to cover people's basic needs. Um, and we, we're really excited by some of the proposals that are out there in terms of how to tackle this. The TUC has made a proposal of setting a universal credit at um, 80% of the real living wage. Um, New Economics Foundation have got this great proposal out there for a guaranteed minimum income it's absolutely essential that while we're pushing for a household debt write-off, we also push to sort out this issue of um, the weaknesses and holes in our, in our social security um, system. It also means we need to, to push for the minimum wage to be set at the real living wage. Um, we need action on precarious work and we obviously need action on our ridiculous housing system and rent caps and investment in social housing um, to, to stop people being so ripped off by, by private renting. Um, so just to conclude, it, we, we think it's essential, basically, that we, do, that we don't see household debt write-off as a silver bullet solution to the problem of household debt. It's absolutely essential that we have a write-off, but we need to push at the same time for solutions to these structural drivers of household indebtedness. Um, otherwise, um, if we run, win a write-off, which we hopefully will, we'll just then have to push for another write-off in 10 years' time and so on um, indefinitely, like we're doing on, on household debt. Thank you. Sorry, on Global South Debt. Thanks. Thanks so much, Sarah. That was fantastic. So many ideas for us to, um, to build on there. Um, I think you highlighted some, you know, really key points. One that immediately comes to mind is why do we always think the crisis is a once-off event, right? And we just need to deal with this crisis. And once we deal with that, everything will be fine. And then the next crisis arises, right? Um, and I can think of examples of, of what you know that process that you've described um for example in ireland after their you know with ireland was particularly drastically affected by the global financial crisis and particularly in the housing sector and uh, legislation was passed which was fairly novel in that it allowed courts to restructure forcibly mortgages against the uh, wishes of the mortgage creditor so it wasn't a voluntary process it was court imposed but it was uh, time limited to apply to certain mortgages that had gone into arrears before a certain cutoff point to deal with that crisis of course now the government is realizing that it needs to change that cutoff point to deal with the current crisis and why why do we think that always that uh, this is just a once-off the case um so you highlight very well the fact that this is systemic and structural and that we need to really think about things in those terms and i also thought you made a very interesting point about our response to the last crisis um how it was maybe overly focused on the su supply side of the economy and um how we actually need to think about building up demand in the economy too and that's actually helping households just as we help businesses so it raises some interesting questions like if you talk to business owners about how 
to help them respond to the crisis? Would they prefer to have bailouts and would they prefer to have funding schemes which are effectively loading them with more debt, albeit on favorable terms? Or would they prefer to have customers and customers who actually have money to spend in their businesses? And how do we do that? Well, we need to repair household finance um, balance sheets and actually help households. So, so some really important points that you raised there, I think that we can get our teeth into in, in the Q&A. And I already see plenty of questions floating in. So that's great to see. Um, okay, next, I'm going to hand you over to Jerome. So Dr. Jerome Ross is an LSE fellow in international political economy at the LSE Department of International Development. He works on the political economy of global finance, sovereign debt, international crisis management, and, and household debt, of course, now. And um, among Jerome's um, accomplishments is the wonderful book called Why Not Default? So I'll hand you over to Jerome now. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, I just wanted to start out by thanking all the other speakers. Um, it's really wonderful to be sort of part of this panel, even though we're all in our own little bubbles. Um, I've learned a lot in the past from the work that's been done by Sarah, by Jana, by Joe, by Deborah. Uh, so it's really fantastic to be sort of part of this panel uh, today. Um, but I also wanted to especially thank Sarah and her colleagues at the Jubilee Debt Campaign for their work, because I really think that, you know, in the sort of the, the things that we're working towards when it comes to debt cancellation, when it comes to uh, really putting this in the agenda, it's really sort of the, the global civil society organizations, the social movements and the activist groups um, that will have uh, a tremendous role to play in, in, in putting all of this on the agenda. So um, I think that the Jubilee Debt Campaign does uh, fantastic work in that respect. And with that in mind, I also kind of wanted to echo what Joe said earlier about mentioning uh, David Graeber, because David, uh, in addition to being a wonderful colleague at the LSE, um, was obviously also um, a very sort of committed activist and organizer who was involved early on in the Occupy movement, and who after the Occupy movement also played an important role in sort of the, some of the spin-offs uh, that came out of that movement, like the strike debt campaign, uh, which helped really push this issue onto the agenda, um, not just in the US, but really internationally. Um, and I think that that's one of sort of uh, David's legacies. Um, beside the wonderful book that he wrote, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which I really urge, I mean, if there are any students in the audience listening in, who haven't read that book, I really urge you to read it. It's a fantastic sort of entry into the debates on the morality and the violence inherent in the debtor-creditor relation. Um, and I really urge you to read it. Uh, but beyond that book, I mean, uh, one of the legacies that will really stay with us and that's also sort of hovering over this conversation as it were, is his activism and his organizing. Um, so I think that we should all bear that in mind how important that is. Um, Basically, what I wanted to do in my short intervention is to basically just jump off uh, right where Sarah left off, really, um, by looking at some of those structural dimensions behind the problem of debt dependence and to look at what might be needed if we are to ensure that a debt cancellation this time around doesn't become sort of a recurring theme that we would then have to uh, reinstitute every 10 years. Um, and that kind of emerges also from my own research on, on sovereign debt where I looked in particular at, uh, I looked at a number of countries, uh, but I looked in particular at Argentina and Greece, uh, both of which have a long history of struggles uh, with debt, and both of which have defaulted a number of occasions in the past, um, but both of which keep experiencing and re-experiencing these same sort of credit-driven cycles that push them into crisis over and over again. So some of you may recall that Argentina had this uh, very famous default in December 2001, where it uh, suspended payments on a large share of its foreign debt. Um, 
That debt was then restructured in 2005. But this year, Argentina again had to restructure its debt in very tedious and difficult negotiations with its foreign creditors, uh, because once again, the problem had reemerged. And what I think that hints at is a, is a deeper structural factor that underlies the global economy and that traps many developing countries or emerging markets in a situation of debt dependence. And like Sarah said, I think there are many similarities in that respect between sovereign debt and household debt. And if we look at household debt today, um, we do see a slightly different dynamic in the sense that it's, um, it, it's never really been forgiven on a large scale or canceled on a large scale in, in recent um, centuries. Uh, but we do have this incredible record levels of household debt, especially if we look at a country like the United States. So I'm going to be mostly referring to figures from the U.S. because it's the world's largest economy, also because it's got uh, excellent data available um, to illustrate some of my points. But in the U.S. today, um, household debt is at a, at a record level. It is at over 14 trillion U.S. dollars, uh, which is higher than it was uh, at the peak uh, just prior to the 2008 crisis. And so I think once again, just like in the, the wake of the 2008 crisis, a question emerges with this coronavirus crisis, which is who pays? Who is going to bear the burden of adjustment for this tremendous crisis? Who is going to be carrying the costs, um, if you will, of that crisis? And what we saw last time is that with austerity, with the bank bailouts and with the insistence on full repayment, um, even of the most heavily indebted households, uh, what you saw is that the burden really fell upon the debtors and upon working class families and taxpayers. And most of the creditors were bailed out and got off scot-free. And that is obviously something that has fed into some of the tremendous anger and indignation at the political establishment that subsequently fed not only into sort of beautiful social movements that we've seen, like the Occupy movement and, and the anti-austerity movement in, in Southern Europe, but also into some more um, uh, grim phenomena, including sort of the rise of the far right, uh, which really has to be seen in my view in the context of the global financial crisis and in the context of the age of austerity that, we, the age of austerity that we've just lived through. So if we want to avoid that kind of a repeat of that kind of scenario, clearly some kind of burden sharing, burden sharing is necessary. And that will have to involve some kind of debt cancellation. So I, I, I completely agree with Sarah and the other speakers that this will have to be part of the package, if you will. Um, but perhaps, you know, the, the lesson that we should draw from history is that debt cancellation may be necessary, but insufficient, right? And we need to tackle some of those structural dynamics that trap households within a situation of debt dependence. And that, in my view, would require some kind of transformation in the way that what we normally call the real economy works, right? So obviously we need a transformation in the way the financial system works and the way that credit is provided. But in this particular intervention, I want to look a little bit more at what we sometimes call the real economy. In reality, they're not as separate as sometimes is, is, is made out to be. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's, it's, it's useful to go there for a bit and, and, and explain a little bit what I'm talking about. So perhaps it becomes clearer if we break down household debt into its various components a little bit and look at what are some of the reasons that these are all booming, right? So one aspect of household debt is, which has come up on a number of uh, previous contributions, is the question of credit card debt, or for instance, of payday loans, the various forms of consumer finance, if you will. This is not actually the largest share of, of household debt, uh, but it's a very important one because it um, often involves much higher interest rates. It often involves short-term loans, and they're often very indicative of 
problems that households encounter in financing their basic needs in the here and now. Um, so in reality, what we're seeing with the rise of credit card debt, for instance, that's really sort of taken off in the 1980s in parallel with the squeeze on household income resulting from, on the one hand, wage stagnation. So the fact that real wages have not risen in line with, um, with um, inflation and productivity. And on the other hand, it's a symptom of this retrenchment of the welfare state that we've uh, heard others talk about before, right? So if you have welfare state retrenchment, if you have wage stagnation, you force people into a situation where they cannot save adequately, where they cannot build up a buffer for a rainy day. And if they do end up in a situation where suddenly um, they have to make a large expenditure, they'll be forced into some kind of credit card debt or payday loan situation with very high interest rates that are often um, leading, that often lead in, to a negative spiral that may end up in bankruptcy or default. So I think that's very important to keep in mind that at the back of all of that rise in consumer finance, we have this issue of wage stagnation and welfare retrenchment. I'm going to come back to that in a bit. Another important component of household debt, um, actually the largest component, is mortgage debt. Um, now this differs per country in terms of how it's been developing, right? But in the US, we see that uh, mortgage debt is now at over 10 trillion uh, US dollars, which is higher than it was in 2008. Um, and obviously, mortgage debt is in turn closely connected to the structure of the housing market and the way in which we provide housing to ordinary households. And part of that has to do simply with the fact that there's been a huge push, especially in the US with sort of the rise of suburbia from the 50s onwards already, um, to push people into home ownership. Um, but that has really risen in dramatic fashion since the 90s and, and, and 2000s with the opening up of the sort of the mortgage economy to a whole new range of borrowers who were previously excluded from home ownership. And that includes, um, you know, many of the households that are on very low income. It, it's, it's a highly um, uh, sort of concentrated, especially in, um, in, in, in poor communities, communities of color um, that were particularly hard hit by the crisis of 2008 as well. Um, so that's, I think, is an important second point to keep in mind, is that this rise of mortgage debt, which constitutes such a large part of overall household debt, is intimately connected with the way in which we provide housing and the way in which people are forced into a system uh, that almost forces them to either buy, or even if they cannot buy, that forces them into a situation where they have to rent and spend a lot of money on, on affordable rents that then squeeze further their income and lead to all the other problems that, um, that I just mentioned on the first point. So those are the sort of two, credit card debt and mortgage debt. Another important component of household debt is student debt. And student debt, especially in the US, has risen in very dramatic fashion in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, but it's obviously, again, connected to something that's been happening in the real economy, which is this dramatic rise in tuition fees, which is also a phenomenon that we obviously see in the UK um, with uh, sort of the reforms of the, the 2010 um, the reforms of 2010 that led to much higher tuition fees in the UK. And now the UK and the US actually have the highest tuition fees for public universities worldwide. And as a result also suffer uh, the consequences, which is a burgeoning student debt crisis, which is a very, very serious issue um, right now. So in the US, for instance, you, a student debt is at over one and a half trillion dollars, uh, which is doubled in the past 10 years alone. Uh, so that's a very important thing to bear in mind as well. And a fourth one that doesn't really come up in many uh, conversations, uh, not a lot of people are aware of it, uh, but a very important uh, growth has taken place in car loan debt. 
And uh, that goes again for the UK, but especially again for the US, where now over one point, there's now over 1.3 trillion US dollars in car loan debt, um, which has been an 80% increase in the past 10 years alone. And that in turn, obviously, is connected to all kinds of demands that are made by the transportation system that we have, which is a lack of affordable and um, sufficient public transport, forcing people into car transport. And then, you know, the squeeze on household income that I mentioned before, leaves people unable to save for the large expenditure on a car. And then, you know, these car loans start emerging in the last 10 years or so to allow people to buy cars without actually making that big upfront uh, expenditure. So car loans have been a huge source of trouble, especially in the US, because a lot of them are subsequently repackaged into these complex deals um, that were very similar to the subprime, subprime loans that fed into the crisis of 2008. So there are some people who are now um, airing concerns about that car loan market in the US, that that could potentially be another source of crisis. And then a fifth issue, which is not so relevant in, in Western Europe, and the UK, but which is very relevant in the US, is the question of medical debt. Um, one in three US workers faces significant medical debts. And over half of those who do face these medical debts have already at some point defaulted on them. And that obviously is connected to the way in which healthcare is provided in the US. Um, both the fact that it's extremely unaffordable and the fact that there is no sort of universal uh, free health coverage. Um, so this is an enormously important issue, especially in the U.S., less so in Western Europe, uh, but one that we do need to, to mention when we do talk about this, this household debt issue, right? Um, one particular thing about it is that medical debt is often, on, or almost always, unforeseen and uh, can make for a huge sudden uh, bump in, in expenditure and is therefore a leading cause of, of bankruptcy in the U.S., um, personal bankruptcy. Uh, so this is a very important issue. Uh, so just to sum up, if we're going to tackle these different aspects of household debt um, in, a, in a satisfactory way, there has to be a corresponding change in the way that um, the actual economy functions, right? So that will have to involve at some level the higher wages. It will have to involve an increase, like Sarah said, in, in welfare spending. Um, it may involve all kinds of things like uh, a move towards quantitative easing for the people. This is something that has come up in the past. We can maybe talk about that in the Q&A a little bit afterwards. Um, but generally what I'm, what I'm hinting at here in terms of the first point is that we need to find ways to boost the reserves of ordinary and poor households. Uh, that people can build up some buffer for a rainy day and so they don't depend on credit card debt and payment loans and other kinds of uh, of debt in order to, to finance themselves out of these tricky situations that they can't foresee. Um, a second, affordable housing, absolutely crucial. If you're gonna tackle the debt crises that keep recurring um, throughout history, you're gonna have to find ways to enable people to live uh, affordably. And that's gonna involve social housing. It's gonna involve you know, changes to the structure of the, of the home, of home ownership. Uh, but there's a variety of things that can be looked at, but it's very important to consider that um, uh, in a context of, of the emerging debt crises. The third, like I mentioned, lowering tuition fees. There's no way you can, ca you can tackle the student debt crisis without lowering tuition fees. Um, the fourth, public transport. This is something that's gonna be absolutely necessary anyway as part of you know, rendering the way that we travel more sustainable uh, in context of the ecological and, and, and the climate crisis. Uh, but it can also help reducing people's dependence on cars and therefore on car loans. 
Um, so public transport, investment in public transport is another um, thing that we can think of. And finally, especially in the US context, universal health coverage, absolutely crucial if we are to consider um, ways to move beyond uh, debt dependence. Um, so these are just some of the interventions that I think are, um, are, are interesting to look at in the context of what we're talking about today. Um, but beyond that, I, I think I just want to conclude by, by talking about a little story of ancient Greece, um, which, which is something that I lived in Greece when I was studying the Greek debt crisis um, throughout the, the past decade. And one story that I came upon that I always found very fascinating is the story of Solon. Solon is often credited as having sort of decreed Athens, ancient Athens' first democratic constitution. And while you know, most of us know that that was not truly a democratic constitution, I mean, women were excluded from the franchise, slaves were excluded, it was something significantly more radical than anything that had Athens itself had, had ever seen before. Um, but he did not decree that democratic constitution in, um, in a vacuum. He actually decreed it in the context of a, of a terrible debt crisis. And that debt crisis had led to um, the enslavement of debtors who had defaulted on their loans. And many of these debt slaves were beginning to rebel now against their landowners and their creditors. And that led the sort of um, established elite to try to think of ways to move beyond uh, this debt dependence that was inherent in the Athenian economy at the time. And so one of the things that Solon did, in addition to decreeing that first constitution, is that he freed the debt slaves and that he canceled their debts. And that really shows for me um, something very interesting about the way in which debt and democracy have historically already been intertwined. And we don't need to buy into the myth that ancient Greece was the source of modern democracy because there are plenty of other sources in indigenous American culture, for instance, that feed into, um, into what we now know as democracy. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's an inspiring story that we can bear in the back of our minds as we talk about debt and as we talk about the crises of democracy that we're seeing emerging all around us today. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that, Jerome. That was, um, well, thank you for your optimism, which I think we all really appreciate. That was a wonderful manifesto that you laid out and um, a great vision for how we might move forward from this um, situation of debt dependency. So thank you so much. Um, we've had so many great questions already. I'm really hoping that I can do justice to the very thoughtful and insightful questions that have come in from our audience. I'm going to get right to it with a, a, a very interesting question, uh, which I think relates to what you've just said, Jerome, and your story from Greece, and also I think relates quite um, closely to the point that Sarah made as well about uh, debt forgiveness as a means of alleviating or preventing political unrest. And, you know, really ra raises this question, how have we put up with this? If, if we live in a democracy, how have we allowed ourselves to get into this situation where we're all up to our eyes in debt uh, and how have we tolerated this. So uh, the question from Phoebe is maybe getting to this. She asks, I'm wondering what you all think about the politicization of the debtor and how to move past the emotional toll of debt towards collective actions such as debt refusal, mutual aid, etc. So Phoebe's really touching on that idea of the politics of debt um, and how we might deal with uh, this issue. So I don't know who, who would like to go first, but I think we all might have something to say on that. Sure, go ahead, Sarah. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I think this is 
this is really the sort of crux the crux of it in terms of how do we unlock the kind of solutions around debt that that we need um our analysis is that a very big part of why we are facing the problems around in relation to debt that we are um, is because of the morality of, of debt that has been constructed under neoliberalism. Um, and it's, it's, you can't separate it out really from um, these wider ideas of um, what, it, what, um, what makes a successful individual under neoliberalism. Um, uh, and this, um, uh, what Margaret Thatcher called economic man, you know, to be to be a successful person um, in uh, in the way that um, neoliberals would like to see the economy run, um, you know, you there are certain you perform certain responsibilities that the sort of state has defined uh, in terms of accumulating wealth, owning a house, um, running a successful business, all of these things, um, and the, and to accompany that. Um, we have all of this morality around debt, which sees um, basically sees debt as um, well. If you're a poor person, sees debt as a failing, um, something to be ashamed about, um, uh, some sort of failing or weakness, or, or um, a failure to you know to perform your sort of job as a citizen. Um, and um, uh, and that because of that morality of debt. Uh, people face debt problems in an incredibly individualized way. It means we hear from the debt advice firms that, you know, people, a lot of time people's debt problems are worse because they don't go to the debt advice agency when they need to because they feel so, so much shame about it. And actually, if they'd gone earlier, these things would be much, um, much easier to um, have resolved. Um, and so really to sort of, if we, if we want to kind of unlock, uh, unlock the kind of solutions to household debt that, that are needed, we feel that actually tackling this morality of debt and the shame around debt is one of the, the most important things to do. Um, and, and part of that is um, uh, like, we're well, just sort of de-shaming debt and talking about these structural issues. But also I think for, um, for organizations like uh, like mine, um, civil society organisations, it it means that we we're starting to embark on a, a big project of community organising with people affected by problem debt. Um, and there's been some really exciting work, pilot work that's already happened in East London um, with a group called the Unfair Debt Group, um, which is comprised and led of people with experience with problem debt who are coming together um, uh, to campaign on the issues that affect them. Um, and really like that, that bringing together of people affected by debt problems to firstly um, share experiences and realize that this is not something that, you know, is your personal failing and not something that you need to face alone. And actually is, is an incredibly widespread structural problem in our economy is, is like both incredibly empowering, but also one of the most important things that, that, that needs to happen in our view. Um, and sorry, just to go back at, um, to what was said at the beginning, I think um, about debt as um, uh, uh, debt as an agent of neoliberalism. We really we um, really subscribe to I think uh, the analysis which was with um, put forward by is it Lazarato? You'll know this more than me, um, LSE academics. Um, but basically, seeing as 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 debt as one of the the most important kind of mechanisms for um, uh, creating inequality under neoliberalism. Um, thanks. Thanks very much for that, Sarah. Fantastic. Um, some of the other panelists might want to come in on this point, and, and just as they do, another question just uh, filtered in, which I think is quite closely related, so I'll put this to you as well. Um, Felix Waters effectively asks uh, about the, the practical realities of reform and thinks that many of the ideas that we've been discussing are of the left, and how do we convince 
political conservatives to get on board with these kind of reforms. I was just going to, I think that's a, a nice tie. And I was going to come in on, on first on Phoebe's point about the politicization of the, of the debtor. Because I think there, there is an important way that we can move and, and actually use these kind of narratives to, to engage people. Because what's happened, you know, as this de debt has sort of built up, you know, all across society, and of course, it's quite lumpy, right? It doesn't, everyone doesn't share it equally, but it, it's still growing. And, and, and it sort of means more and more groups in society are kind of, you know, um, being, you know, being kind of roped in, you know, like the t tentacles of debt sort of bringing it into this kind of debtors um, relationship where you're sort of working just to sustain your, your debt payments is, and we see it in the debt advice thing, you know, in, in these moments when people come for advice, when they when they sort of say, oh, I just I can't go on. This debt is like causing so much problems that, that like the household is collapsing. Mental health is collapsing. The weight and the pressure of debt is sort of reaching into people's life and these intimacies uh, of all elements of life. And I think that uh, just to tie into Jerome's point about medical debt in the U.S., I think it's important to say that in Britain, but, but in Europe and more generally, as the welfare state has been retrenched, that it's still medical illness that, that, that can cause a lot of, in, of debt problems, a heart attack, cancer, all, anything that sort of basically affects your ability to, 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 to bring in income. So we can still have medical debts that aren't just for paying for the service, but related to a kind of broader lack of provisioning for human health in society that recognizes that when people are, you know, victims of misfortune or, or, or um, just, you know, human bodies that get sick, as we've seen in the pandemic, but cancer and all other forms of, of illness need some form of protection. And if not, they, they either, you know, get a second mortgage or they start borrowing on the credit card or um, they, they start falling behind on their council tax. So there's a real way that debt intervenes at these moments of in, uh, misfortune, but increasingly sort of encroaching on our everyday life. And it's important to politicize that. To really say, and I, and I think it does actually link to, to Felix's point about of the right and of the left, because when we look at, at even the most conservative ideologies of, 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 of Adam Smith, for example, and him and his railing against the rentier, you know, against unproductive um, way that kind of uh, interest-bearing finance sort of leeches uh, away productivity and, and, and takes away the vitality of an economy. There is a kind of common recognition in the way that predatory finance, the way in which, um, you know, the kind of having so much power to the financial sector to kind of constantly be extracting rents uh, you know, landlords as well to this kind of rent extracting uh, rentier is incredibly problematic. And, and, and even Keynesianism is recognizing that, you know, a much more liberal center ground uh, type uh, economic, you know, political ideology recognizes the, the, the inherent structural problems that are caused when, when the economy is not balanced. Uh, you know, uh, with the different stakeholders that having so much power for finance and to make them the engine of the economy, like we see in Britain and in America, which is why they're so much more fragile, why their their crises are so much deeper, is because you know it's inherently tied up into this choice that they made to pick the winner of of let finance be the driver of of demand, let let finance provide welfare provisioning through through home ownership. 
you know, let how, you know let finance provide public provision like education, you know, university and and so on. So I think it's that kind of recognition that when we have debt cancellation, we can find political coalitions with those who recognize the real distorting effects that 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 giving finance so much power has had. I mean, I, again, if we harken back to the post two thousand and eight days, you know, if you think about. Mervyn King, Adair Turner, uh, you know, writing these books about the, the, you know, when they finally leave the seat of power and can do nothing to, to, to actually affect change, reflect back on their days and think, you know, we should probably reform finance, uh, you know, if we want to stop having so much, uh, uh, you know, I, I call it the boom, bust, bailout, austerity, doom loop. We just keep just circling round and round, right? Um, so I think that there there is a lot of, of kind of political coalition around it. Uh, and, and part of that comes about politicizing debt itself. You know, should debt be providing welfare? Should debt be how um, uh, the average person gets to the end of the month when it comes to income and expenditure? You know, is high cost lending in an era of historically low interest rates uh, fair? You know, again, is, uh, I saw one of the very interesting questions about just and unjust. But maybe it is more about fair or, you know, accurate. Again, given that historically low interest rates are coming at the back of government debt being, you know, piled into the market as a safe asset. It's, it's ultimately taxpayers that are guaranteeing, you know, this flood of low interest rates. Then turn around and say these same taxpayers have to pay 18, 20 percent on a credit card or six or eight percent on a student loan is really excessive. So I think that, you know, we can really think in terms of practical solutions when we politicize the harm that debt itself is causing uh, in, in everyday life. But in the economy writ large, that real important connection between everyday life and, and the broader structural problems in the economy are, are important ways that we can make it political. I think that's a fantastic uh, answer, Jada. You really covered so many key points there. It was really wonderful. Um, yeah, and it's fascinating to bring it back to Alan, Adam Smith. I mean, it's really interesting looking at Wealth of Nations. There are passages there where he basically says there should be no consumer credit at all, and credit should only be used for productive investments where the profits from the investment pay off the interest and ultimately the principle. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really interesting to bring it back to those kind of first principles. What are we doing here with consumer credit having such a central place in our economy? Um, and that leads to a bunch of questions which I'm going to group together. Um, they've been really great questions, so I hope I do them justice. And again, I'm sorry to the questioners if, uh, if I have to compress things. So we have Tim Frost and Donnie Reed, who are LSE alumni, and then Richard Lane from Step Change and Sam Nurse, from the Money Advice Hub. They're all picking on this issue of breaking the cycle of debt, okay? So we can cancel the debts, what happens next? Um, so Tim Frost and uh, Richard were both asking about how do you see future credit markets operating? Uh, what would they look like? Would they be markets in which there's less access to credit? Credit is more tightly regulated. Um, would there be discrimination in markets against those who have had their debts written off? How do we deal with these kind of problems? Um, also, the issue was raised about, well, um, how do we stop people needing to keep going back to credit markets? And are things like universal basic income an idea here? 
And then Sam Nurse was also looking at it less from a structural and systemic point of view, but more looking at it from a behavioral point of view and asking, do we see any role for um, education or behavioral change as part of the, the process as well? Um, yeah, so I think, I think that that's kind of covering that group of questions. So who would like to come in first? I think some of these points have been touched upon in the talks, right? But uh, if there's any, anyone who'd like to, to jump on any of that. Yeah, Deborah, thanks. Yeah, just to say in relation to some of the questions asked that even if one doesn't necessarily consider a complete sort of household right, debt write-off, and I suppose I was arguing for something a little bit more moderate in the sense of sort of saying we, we're still going to need these coal-faced debt advice people to, to sort of do their job. <clears throat> I, was, I was at a conference in Princeton which is all about dignity in debt, and it was about recognizing that people are going to have to continue borrowing for one reason or another in a sort of less than utopian world, but that the least that could happen would be to bring a certain level of dignity. And there were in some very interesting proposals there, including uh, somebody who was working in the mission of a fairly poor neighborhood in San Francisco, enabling sort of poorer people to try to build up credit scores um, and in a sense, build themselves from, you know, really kind of destitute, like in inability to pay back on the basis of small increments. So a lot of the answer, I think, might, lay, might lie in these small increments, allowing people to, in fact, enjoy the sort of, let's call it dignity of repaying in a sort of sustainable manner, provided that there's regulation about high interest rates, the ones that John was talking about, and thus, in a sense, build their way into at least a sustainable future without necessarily abolishing the whole kind of system that we're talking about. Just another point that I wanted to add in relation to what was asked, um, spoken about before, and this is a, a point that was raised in a, in a book by Caitlin Zaloom, which is about student debt in, in America. And she talks about the fact that austerity ultimately has meant the withdrawal of the state and the loading of obligation onto private citizens. And in a sense, that really does lay at the basis of so much of what we've been talking about here. But And that also lays at the basis of the reason why people who do feel ashamed and sort of embarrassed about the debt that they are in fail to recognize, in a sense, that it is really ultimately um, a wider issue of redistribution that needs to come into play rather than being all borne by single individuals themselves. I think that connects back to what Sarah Jane was talking about. Yeah, or Jerome, did you want no, to go? No, yeah, go ahead. No. no, no, okay. I just wanted to to come in on the um, the issue. It actually does connect to something that Jerome was talking about in terms of you know tight examples of of household debt cancellation. You know that 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 have been successful, and I, I think that the the first one would be you know to think historically about the the the, the logic of why we ended debtors' prisons. You know, and, and basic. Um, you know, and this links to the law department, right? The kind of legal framing around a debt contract not being able to, you know, inflict material harm and hardship, that there's a kind of recognition that, uh, you know, that, that debtors' prisons and this kind of enforcing of debt contracts or bank bankruptcy, you know, destroyed uh, the, the, the debtor in all elements, um, you know, is it important to understand this is a, an element of modernization. This is a part of democratic transformations going on at the time uh, and, and, and moving us out of a kind of Victorian economy, this kind of imperial economy. Another one, what, you know, is linked to this was the easing of personal bankruptcy and creating, um, you know, rules around, uh, you know, legal procedures um, 
uh, around bankruptcy. And I think uh, when I first met Joe, that was a very interesting work you were doing around how Ireland never did this. It had to sort of invent personal bankruptcy law uh, in response to 2008. And, and really what that said about kind of how backwards uh, the, you know, uh, the kind of legal framework in Ireland was, because this is a key element of modernization and, and, and democratic credit transformation. So I think we need to think about that as well. Ease which allows citizens to kind of be released from their debt obligations because we recognize that, um, you know, there shouldn't be, there's a, a level of material harm that shouldn't be inflicted because of a, you know, a basic contractual ab obligation. And I point here to um, the Croatian example of the fresh start. You know, that wasn't, you know, exactly... Um, you know, this was kind of a coordinated effort between central government, local authorities, um, utility or, you know, quasi-state institutions, mobile phone companies, you know, big institutional, again, links to, linked to telecoms, and, and agreeing that there, these people who had been holding debts and had these problem debts, which excluded them from, from participation in the economy, had this effect of, of leaving them out of being able to access just basic elements of, of economic citizenship, we're then given debt, you know, we're, we'll have those debts written off as a way to give them a fresh start to just be able to get a bank account to, to, to get a mobile phone contract. So, you know, they kind of link that, that showed this innovation in which you can use debt cancellation to actually solve problems in society and advance, um, you know, democratic norms and freedom. And I think a, a really important one that happened in America that never happened in Britain, which again, we need to think about in the context of housing is non-recourse mortgages. Uh, and the idea, you know, that happened in the 1930s in the midst of the Great Depression in, in, in the U.S. and seen as fundamental to the, the kind of rights of, of ordinary people and workers that, you know, they would they could take on a mortgage for a home, you know, in, in promoting of home ownership. But there was a recognition that lenders had to take on some of that risk, that burden sharing. And if, if that became too much, you could just leave your keys on the counter and walk out, which is what happened in, in, in America uh, post-2008, but didn't happen in the same way in Britain because... Uh, you can be pursued for the full value of your mortgage, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, in, until you die. And even then, you know, we've seen some malfeasance in, in, in continuing to pursue people uh, or, or their family members. So, again, we have to think about, you know, there have been lots of examples and we are part, we can advance the, the broader march of legislative and regulatory change. That, that means that when we cancel the debts that are caused by, you know, overzealous lenders. And I think that when we think of behavioral change, and I like that, that question because it, it puts us in the frame, frame of mind that the regulators use around why are people taking on debt in terms of the, their decision-making. You know, we can give people financial education, but we also have to think about behavioral change in the lenders themselves. You know, when, when we don't have, when we have non-recourse mortgages, we have lenders who feel like you know, they can, they can, why not overlend? What's the downside of that? I can just pursue these people or sell the debts off to, to, a, to a, a very robust debt collection agency. So we can use uh, debt relief to, to, as a me mechanism of influencing behavioral change around lenders to make them feel like they won't extend multiples and multiples and always push the boundary of the loan products that they're issuing if they know that they can uh, then get a haircut, they can get those debts written off. So I think there's an important, we can use that language uh, already to think about how debt relief can be used as part of a wider package of structural change. 
Yeah, let me just jump in there quickly, if there's time. Oh yeah, of course, Jerome, yeah? go ahead. Cool. Yeah. No, there was one question um, about, if I recall correctly, about um, alternative ways of providing credit or something along those lines. Um, I'm not an expert on this, so I'm not gonna go off on a, on a complete tangent here, but I, I did mention in my intervention just now, uh, some things that could be done to reduce the dependence on debt, which is really targeting, let's call it the demand side of debt dependence. Um, but obviously there's also things that we need to think about in terms of the supply of credit. Um, we're not gonna just emerge uh, into a utopian world where tomorrow uh, people don't need money and credit anymore. And besides, it's not necessarily, um, credit is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's really about the way that the present system is structured and, and that's a fundamental problem. Um, so in terms of the supply side, I think we really need to think more about what it means to actually democratize finance. And I think that one of the things that we have to bear in mind in that respect is this incredible transformation that we've seen essentially since the 1930s with this incredible concentration and centralization of the credit system. Um, unfortunately, I can't show you the graph now. There's a graph in my book which shows uh, the tremendous increase in the concentration of uh, assets on the balance sheets of an ever smaller amount of systemically important banks um, over the last um, little bit less than a century. And that process essentially means that all of us have become increasingly dependent on an ever smaller circle of systemically important banks. Now, what that means is that if you have a very small amount of systemically important banks, those banks gain a form of structural power over the economy. Um, because if one of them were to go, were to fall because of its irresponsible lending, um, it would, you know, basically remove the foundations of the entire financial system. That was the argument, at least, right? So that's why, with that argument, policymakers went and bailed out the banks in the 2008-2009 crisis. Um, that's a fundamental dependence on a very small amount of systemically important players. If you want to move away from that, you have to break down that uh, that it's it's like almost like an oligarchy financial aristocracy, as Marx called it, uh, of systemically important banks. You have to break that down to some extent. And that's not even a radical thing or anti-capitalist thing to do. That's simply antitrust measures that anyone even you know, in favor of free markets should be in favor of. Um, so that's one thing. That's, that's simply to break down the power of the most important financial institutions. Um, but there are other things that can be done. I and mean, there's a lovely little article by Fred Block, a US sociologist called Democratizing Finance that offer some suggestions in that respect. And I believe it may be coming out in book form with Verso, if I, if I remember correctly, sometime soon. Um, and that here, there he makes the argument that you need all kinds of alternative financial institutions to provide different forms of credit. So that will involve you know, public investment banks to provide public forms of credit for investing in the type of housing and transport that don't perpetuate our state of debt dependence. Uh, it may involve the blooming of a variety of alternative types of credit themselves. So I believe that, uh, I don't know if you can still hear me. You can hear me again? Okay, my uh, headphones just um, uh, ran out of the battery. Um, but essentially what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm hinting at is ways, and there are ways to think of other um, ways of providing credit, public credit, common or community credit, and these must all be on the agenda if we are to restructure the financial system and think of a much more democratic way um, and much more decentralized way of organizing um, credit provision creation. 
Well, thanks so much for that, Jerome and, and Jonna. Um, I think your responses were great. They also covered some of the other questions we've had from Sonia and Athena, which were effectively twin questions in, in my eyes, uh, which were asking, kind of dealing with this issue of, of moral hazard on both sides of the market, on the demand side and supply side. So, you know, that there must be consequences for financial institutions who overlend and they must feel some some of the loss and some some of the pain must be shared. But also, um, how do we look at things from the demand side and and in terms of uh, how do we make sure that uh, debt relief does not mean reduce financial incentives for individuals to act prudently? Also, which is an ongoing question here, and I think it's something that we've kind of touched upon. Um, uh, we had some other great questions. Richard Holland has a wonderful question about what is an unjust debt and uh, what is a just debt, which I really uh, think was terrific as well. We've lots of other. Um, Ali also gave a very personal insight into uh, the, the question of the relationship between private profit and state provision in terms of uh, housing benefit and how that's used to prop up uh, private housing markets. Um, so we had some lots of wonderful questions. I want to thank everyone in the audience for that. But I'm afraid that we have exceeded our time limit. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if we're still live or not, but if we are. Oh, great. Um, if we're still live, sorry, my screen is turned off. Um, we're still live here. So I wanted to um, reflect again on Deborah's slide so showing how long we've all been talking about this issue of debt cancellation. And I think we will continue to talk about it into the future. So uh, running out of time is perhaps not um, surprising. But thank you very much to everyone who joined us and attended here. Thank you for your wonderful questions. And thanks most of all to the excellent panelists for, for some really remarkable insights. Thank you.